0: Hello, and welcome to Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Native American artists, creators, writers, musicians, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of Cana, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Native American community from around the region and country. For our first episode, I want to introduce you to Gerald Kunoyer. He's someone I've known for about 25 years, He's a painter, an educator. He has five degrees ranging from an associate's to multiple master's degrees. He was the director of the Oskar Howe Summer Art Institute, a faculty member of a number of university and colleges, and is currently the chair of the Indian Art Market at Bacone College in Muscogee, Oklahoma. I think what makes Gerald so interesting and worth listening to is the wealth of knowledge on Native American art, its history, and its importance to youth trying to discover themselves today. So, let's jump into this interview with Mr. Knoyer. Gerald, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor having you here. Um, Five Plain Questions is a very straightforward uh, interview. Um, We'll ask you five simple questions, and really, we're just going to jump right into it. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, and where are you from?
1: Okay. Um, Greetings, my relatives. I am his many bears. I am Oglala Lakota. I grew up at Marty, South Dakota, and I attended St. Paul's Indian Mission in the early 70s, which later became Marty Indian School. I graduated from Todd County High School in Mission, South Dakota in 1985. Three weeks later, I was on the Yellow Footprints in the United States Marine Corps. I was swearing in. And after four years of the Marine Corps, I got out and I, now what, was the big question. So what was I going to do? Throughout my grade school and high school, I always had art in my life. I was always drawing. I was always painting. When I was in second grade, the teacher asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? And my answer was, I want to be an artist. So, it was actually following my dreams from childhood. What is being an artist? That was the big question. How do I become this artist? What do I need to be doing? So, like many people i I was just drawing and trying to paint without having any formal training to help me along the way. I could paint what's sold. I could draw what sold, but what I wanted to do was get my work to a place where it's more about intellectualism than it is about just an Indian on a horseback or portraits or portraits of Indian people because that's what everybody else was doing. That's where the market was. And I wanted to do more than that. Making money was great when you don't have any money. So it was an extra source of income while you were working another job. How do you turn that job into making money making art? That was the real question. So I went to the Institute of American Indian Arts and graduated with an associate in fine arts. Went to the University of South Dakota, graduated with a bachelor in fine arts, and then basically asked myself, now what? Where am I going to get a job with a BFA in painting? So I got this Master's of Art in Interdisciplinary Studies, which focused on Native American Studies and Native American Art, Art History, and some painting. From there, I needed a more formal training so I can teach at the college or university level. So I went to the University of Oklahoma and received a, bachelor's, or a Master's in Fine Arts in painting. So, along this path, I learned the do's and don'ts through trial and error about becoming this artist that was able to sustain himself while teaching. So, teaching was an income, and then on the side, you're doing your work full time. That was the great part about having that MFA. Finding a job at a college or university without going through years and years of being an adjunct professor. That was that was the key. So finding a job at Oglala Lakota College, teaching at a tribal college on a reservation in Pine Ridge, um, having the experience of teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts, having the experience working at O Oklahoma City Community College, O Triple C in Oklahoma City was another experience working at a Montgomery College in Washington, D.C. That led me to this master's in arts management from Goucher College in Towson, Maryland. And I learned a lot of things along the way. Over the summers, Joe and I taught at the Oscar House Summer Art Institute. We learned a lot of valuable lessons there about what it takes to be mentors and about what it takes to foster and develop the next generation of Native artists. So we've seen students like Keith Braveheart and Henry Payer come out of that program, go to the Institute of American Indian Arts, graduate, and then go on to get a master's degree in fine arts, and now they're both college professors. So having an influence there, getting them excited, and helping them get to that next level, that was that's huge. So, this job that I currently have is the School of Indian Art at Bacon College, the art director. And I can see the influence. When I was at the University of Oklahoma, the Kiowa Five was there in 1915, Kiowa 6, I wanna say, 1915, 18, somewhere in that range. And they were the first influencers across the united states with native american art indian art they were told to paint what they knew paint from their experience so that the next generation would learn those dances would learn those songs would learn their language and keep their culture alive through these drawings and paintings historically we had all of these different types of Work that was being done. So there was an evolution from this rock art to wood carvings to quill work to parflesh work to bead work. To, with all of these influxes of materials coming in, it was just a matter of time before native artists were learning how to use those materials, learning how to use what was given, what was there in the land, making the pigments. Um, Painting on hides, those were the first recordings of the history, so we had hide paintings and it gave a year and it gave one symbol of what happened during that whole entire year over time, we started to expand, so we went through all of these different phases where they had the the all of those different um acts about Indian. Indian rights, Indian people, Indian lands. So we went through um, the reservation era and what that meant. And then now we're going into the boarding school era and, and what that meant. That journey from nomadic lifestyle to now you're on a reservation and you can't leave the reservation and now you're supposed to feed your family. So it was almost like your whole culture just stopped. Everything you knew just stopped, and now you had to adapt. And that boarding school era, now you're taking your kids away from you, and you're putting your kids in boarding school. And what that had done, the abuses, the atrocities that have happened there. And then we move on into the next phase, into the next phase of all of these different things that were happening. So people who knew better than we did about how to raise our children, and how to teach the next generation something was taken away from us. So that evolution of art also changed. With new things, with with uh, new materials, everything changed. So those early influencers go back to the Kiowa, Kiowa 6. And then coming out of University of Oklahoma in the 20s and 30s, A.C. Blue Eagle, so he was teaching this flat style. So no background and no shadowing. And it was just an outline of a person. And then you put a little bit of color in there. So it was kind of like a limited color palette at that time. Then it was one individual. Then it was two individuals. Now they're, they're hunting buffalo. So all of these different things they were the first ones that were influencing things that were happening at that time in the 20s and 30s AC Blue Eagle started under them and then he started to learn different techniques and things that he brought to Bacon College in 1935 then we had Woody Crumbo come and Woody studied at Bacon he went to University of Oklahoma he came back and he took over at Bacon, and then he learned different techniques and things and he brought that back. So screen printing started coming in at around this time, almost 1940. Then Dick West came in and when Dick West came in, so now all of these different things are opening up. So it was right after World War II, many advances in different materials and things were happening. So, Dick West was teaching from the experiences of his mother and father, and his grandparents. So, we're probably looking back into those times when people couldn't remember different stories. And so, painting those stories is a way of keeping that history. So, everybody was keeping this history alive. Everybody was speaking their language, and everybody was still trying to hold on to that culture through ever evolving time in the united states so all of the things that were being developed all of that we still wanted to be relevant with our own culture our own history and so those are those are the things that we were doing and all the way up into the 70s and 80s at bacon ruthie blaylock jones was there um terry saul was there and gary colbert was there doing the same things all the way up to tony tiger and then I come on board. So this evolution it 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 happened over a period of time. We're still painting what what our culture is. We're still painting the stories, we're still painting the history and the traditions. So I hope I answered the question, Joel.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. That and uh, a couple others, actually. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, it's, it's such a rich history that I think
2: gets—I I don't want to say lost—but it, it, it's assumed that younger people know this by the older generations, and sometimes those don't get passed on. And I think it's why you know it's, it, us coming from a from an oral history. Um, I think the farther along move in time. Some of those old stories don't get passed. Young kids don't listen as much, and so a lot of that just sort of disappears. And so it's it's good to hear these things, um, especially you know hearing uh, the the Kiowa Six, you know, and hearing uh, Crumble's name. Um, I, I, I think Circle Nation School, a uh, place that I work, they actually have one of his paintings in the library there. And I just as you're talking, I just made this connection. So it's it's. It's exciting to hear these things, and it's good that they're talked about. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, But this leads us into the second question is, for yourself, who are your biggest influences?
1: Going back to when I was a young warrior (laughs) growing up on the plains, um, uh, my biggest influence is, I would say, I was looking at at all of these posters cuz at that time at the boarding school we could walk down the halls and people would be putting up these different conference posters and they would have different individuals on there so i remember some of the early works of of um people like Oscar Howe some of those those things were up there And I also remember, um, now I'm forgetting, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sam English, there we go, Sam English. I remember Sam English seeing some of those early posters and I thought it was, I I felt proud. I thought, man, these guys are, are doing things that we're being told not to do. Remembering their culture? And remembering their history and painting the indian people and i was looking at those like man they're proud to be indian i'm indian i should be proud to be indian mm-hmm. too and so that led me to want to become that artist i mean i was just a little kid and seeing those things for the first time and looking and trying to find artists that were doing these things And we had art in this building, and we would go up to the third floor. And when we got up there, all the way around the, on all the walls, each student, each high school student, if they chose, they could do a large painting. So you're talking probably five feet by five feet. And they were doing works. I distinctly remember Black Bear Boson. And the Eagles had an album cover with a look like a buffalo skull
2: mm.
1: one of the one of the high school students painted that on the wall, and so all of these things that again we were being taught you know forget your culture, language, and history mm-hmm. and traditions and then suddenly late seventies now you're seeing this in the school when it changed over to Marty Indian School, then it was all about remembering who we are. So I saw all of that stuff, and I was like, man, this is what I want to do.
2: (laughs) In you know, looking back, um, you know, there were were actual acts of Congress, and also by the states to to put down our culture, you know, making uh, ceremonies illegal, uh, dancing illegal. And in a sense, these artists, they were resisting They were they were putting it down on paper uh, or on canvas, uh, showing us what our ceremonies were, what our history was, and passing it not passing it off as art, but you know uh, presenting it as artwork. But at the same time, it was sort of a it was a, a nod or a secret message to the rest of us, you know, that hey, this is this is where we come from, this is what we're doing. Yeah, so how and you you touched a little bit about this at the beginning, but you know how how have you developed your career uh both both in college and post college or so,
1: well like okay oh, uh, like many starving artists in the beginning of your career, you want to paint what sells, and at that time you you're looking at your stuff like, man, this is nobody's doing this.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's how I was developing. When I got to IAI, I thought, man, this is the this is the ticket. This is if I graduate from here at this time, right? If I graduate from here, I'm going to be in that category of awesome Indian artist. So I was I had dreams of selling my work for hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and And the reality of it was that my work was going to sell for maybe $100. And if you were lucky, you would get $1,000. So I I knew I needed more than an associate degree. So when I went back to South Dakota, I started getting into different types of painting. So at IAIA, I was just trying to paint what would sell and that was my idea of success at the university of south dakota i was trying to learn more technical parts of drawing and painting and it it felt like that's not what we're doing here we're more worried about content than we are technical ability and so i felt like I, i missed a part of that so the drawings i could do the paintings i could do but i didn't have the very technical pieces to it. I learned some figure drawing at IAIA and I learned some more drawing skills but I never quite put things together. At University of South Dakota I thought I would be learning more about color theory and how to mix those. And I kind of got turned off there. So I continued on this path and I was more determined to become a better artist. So when I graduated from USD with a bachelor's in fine arts, I had some skill. I could sell a painting for up to $1,500 at that time. But those were so so few and far in between. And then I got this master's degree. And I wanted to teach so I could so I could continue to paint on the side until my My day job was just going to be art altogether, so I would travel and hit the Indian art trail and I would go from show to show and just make money. In reality, that's not really what happens. So I knew I needed this master's degree so I could go and teach, so I went to the University of Oklahoma, and I got in as a special student while I was applying for grad school. So it took me a year when I got there. So I took a couple of classes, got to meet the faculty, got to see what the school was like, talked about experimentation. And so George Hughes was a huge part of what I learned. And George talked about you can do all of these things. I can see you're a great painter and you paint about Native American imagery. You paint about some culture and he said now that's great i want to add to what you already know so you tell me what we're going to have these conversations you tell me what you want to paint about and so i started like you know wow what what do i really want to paint about so i started talking about history and culture and all of these things and he said you're dancing around the question what do you want to what do you want to say with this work? And I said, there's a revival in Native American spirituality. And he said, good. Now let's explore that. And he said, what what exactly are you talking about? So I had to explain ceremonials to him, and I had to explain rituals and dances and things like that. So he said, okay, now let's talk about painting this. And he said, without putting a dancer in there.
2: Hmm.
1: Without being so literal that you need a horse and a teepee and you need someone chasing down a buffalo. And so he said, how do you paint this, this smoke without actually painting the smoke? How do you paint this this um, ceremony without actually painting people doing the ceremony. He said, that's that's the, the problem for you to solve. So I had to read a lot. and Then we would have these conversations. I was making large works and I was cranking out paintings left and right. And finally, I was taking photographs and a friend of mine, Scott Hale, came over one day and he said, um, hey, I want to see some of your work. And so I started pulling things out. And he said, can you take photographs of these and then send them to me, and I'll send them around. And so he sent them to people, and then I get a phone call one evening. Ray Trotter called me. He said, I'm coming in from Taos, New Mexico. I've seen your work. I love your work. Let's see what you got. I'll buy a painting or two. At this time, I was summertime, and I'm working construction. So when Ray showed up, he said, I'm gonna look through and he showed up at midnight and I had all these paintings around in this large room. I was painting out of a small bathroom. That was my studio mm-hmm. space. So he's he's looking at all these paintings and he said, I'm gonna buy this one and this one. So he sat down, and he wrote me out a check. And that allowed me to quit my job doing construction, and that's where my career started to take off. So we had a one-man solo exhibition out there in Taos. He flew my wife and I out there, and then they picked us up at the airport in Albuquerque, took us out to eat, did all these, you know, wine and dined me, I guess you could say. And we had the show the next day, and everything sold. So he said we'll settle up once all this comes in. He said here's here's a couple thousand dollars walking around money, mm-hmm. and he said whenever um, all the checks come in, he said I'll send you a larger check. So we flew back, and I was so excited, and then I realized I don't have any work left. <laughs> <laughs> so that pushed me back into the studio. I used to buy the small uh, three, four ounce tubes of paint. Now I had to buy gallons of paint. And then I'm experimenting, I'm learning more, I'm reading. And then I started getting these shows in different places. So at one point, I was in five different galleries across the United States. I had a show in Italy and then um well still a graduate student. And then I had uh, three shows going on. So I had my thesis exhibition and then I had a show at the state capitol and I had a show out in New Mexico.
2: I remember this time, because uh, I think I I was down there and we filmed uh you and at that studio space in Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because we went out to, uh, was it George's um, gallery over in, um, was it Lawton? No, Norman. Did Norman there?
1: Norman. Yeah, we went to a few galleries in okay. Norman.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think have, Yeah, there was, we met a few people, but yeah, yeah, there was just a lot going on. I remember you had this, uh, you had a couple of rooms just full of other paintings uh, that you had completed, and you're, you're ready to, to get those out and shown.
1: Yeah, Uh, working every day. I mean, there was a ritual to it. So at 8 o'clock in the morning, I was on my way to the studio. I stopped and got myself a cup of coffee. And while I was getting coffee, I'm just looking at things. And then now it's all about design elements and color combinations. And using the spirituality as a springboard. So painting about these ceremonials. but actually having that story and then as you put the layers and layers of paint on then it started to come alive so there was a the ritual of coming into the studio and smudging the space and then i could get into my work and while i'm working i had a five cd player that tells you how long ago <laughs> <that was. laughs> so the cds would be off and i'm still painting i'm just And it becomes like a ceremony. So at at the Sundance, in the morning you go up and you touch that tree and then you walk backwards. You do that four times. So you're going up and you're touching that tree and you're praying and you're meditating and you're walking backwards. That's what I was doing. So I was going up to the canvas. I'm making my changes and then I'm walking backwards. So it was this whole communication between myself and the painting. Just back and forth, back and forth, all day long, cleaning my brushes. I had a refrigerator and I had a microwave. I had my stereo system and that's kind of it was like I'm I'm there all day. And then about midnight, because my wife would bring me lunch and dinner at midnight when the doors would open and close by themselves. I was like, you know, time to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Shout
2: out to your wife for supporting you all these years. You know, providing meals and doing all the the things that keep you going.
1: Yeah, she took all the photographs and she did all the communication. And cell phones weren't very big at at that time. And um, so when I did get into the studio and I did have a cell phone, I turned it off. And then she would drive out and say, "Hey, I'm trying to get a hold of you. So and so wants this or wants that, or we need." Photographs of whatever, and uh, so we were taking pictures and then sending them out, leave your phone on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's hard, though, because like you get going on something and suddenly you get interrupted, and it stops everything. stops everything, even if it's just a momentary phone call.
1: Yeah. So my job now, I create, but I don't create at the level I used to in graduate Mm -hmm. school. I create at a much slower pace, it's more deliberate, and I have to already know what I'm gonna be doing in order for me to make this happen. Because I have so many administrative duties at the college. <laughs> different,
2: different yeah, time. Yeah. Do you uh, do you wish for more studio time, or are you in a good place right now, or how are are you
1: working on that balance? Well, I, I would really love more studio time. We're going through a, a drastic change at the college. We're going from a, a institution that's um, more religious and we're making a shift to tribal college mm-hmm. status. So that requires more meetings, that requires um, more things to be done in order to get us there. So that takes away from um, my ability to go through a class and to show and to present and then have time for my own work.
2: So I guess the the fourth question that we have is uh, how do you seek opportunities? And this is a I think this is a question more for someone who is still early on in their career, um, because I think your situation is, is circumstances are different. Um, but I guess yeah, I mean you know you're you're in a different place, a uh, different phase in your career, and so are the opportunities different? The types of opportunities? Do older, maybe opportunities from ten years ago, you know, being at shows or or in different places are those priorities lower now or i don't know like like what what's appealing to you now what are you striving for or opportunities for yourself
1: well as a young artist just starting out i remember i was applying for any show and every show group shows knowing that you're not going to get a solo exhibition so I was applying for any anything, any opportunity to sell work. Once I got into the MFA program and once I started to get that recognition, not just nationally or not just locally or regionally, and then it became national level and then I was international because I was over in Italy. Those opportunities presented themselves. So I, Tried to go as slow as I could, but at the same time, it was exciting. So it requires more work in the studio and less work uh, on something else. So I could teach my classes at OU and I can go right into the studio and then come back and teach another class or a night class and then right back into the mm-hmm. studio. And now my work is more of a About, um, uh, it's more about the process of painting than it was trying to sell something. So it's more process driven and it's more driven by um, the content. So I still want to speak about spirituality and how that's so connected. So now I'm weaving together these stories that I'm hearing as a as I'm going along this artistic journey. And then you have, you wear so many hats. You just wear so many hats. I remember at Oglala Lakota College, I was painting one morning, early in the morning, like six o'clock I'm painting. And um, one of my Sundance brothers gives me a call and he said, hey, what are you doing? I said, "Uh, I'm painting. I have two paintings I need to get done. Or this Governor's show, and I need to have these done by Friday. It was uh Sunday morning, and he said, "Well, since you're not doing anything, <laughs> why don't you come and <laughs> come and help us cut wood for the sweat? <laughs> so I knew that was an all day thing, but when those opportunities come up, then you're kind of you're you're kind of mm. obligated to do them. So it's it's above yourself, and it's for community. So I went out, and I we cut wood all day. I was kind of mad at first, but then I thought, well, this is community, this is bigger than me. So I go out there, we cut the wood, we do all that stuff, we hang out, and uh, there's a group of us, you know, 15 of us out there cutting this wood and doing all this stuff. We're missing out on time with family, we're missing out on other things we could be doing but we knew we needed this needed to get to get done at that time same thing with this job here there's a lot more things happening now we're in this um, shelter in place at home so you one would think that gives you all the time in the world to create but it doesn't Um, i still have meetings i'm still holding classes and i'm still on different committees so where does that leave me any time during the day to get these things done? Now I'm writing grants. So that's another twist. So you're being creative in another way, but it's not what you would really expect <laughs> uh, this late in your mm-hmm. career. So now the opportunities are presenting themselves to me. So I, recently I was up in at the Philbrook a few months back and they have this one-hour session and they have three different sessions so they had close to a 100 artists up there so the first session was about 33 35 of us and there were snacks for us and then they had a few art supplies and you basically brought whatever it is you wanted to do so i sat there and i drew out a, a raven and i um, did my watercolor and then i had some and an ink to it, and then this is my first time there. So other artists showed up later and my friends and, you know, Marwin was there, and so Marwin did a print. So he had his screen, he had his squeegee, he had his inks, his papers. So he taped his paper down and he made sure he was doing his registration correctly. And then he did this print, and then, he did uh three of them within that hour but that's real product production type work I think and you know I'm over here taking my time and I didn't heck I didn't know what, what was going on with, with this whole thing but everything sold for thirty five dollars you just put it up on the wall and so everybody's standing around watching and then people are like I want this one I want this one and so before it even hits the wall, there's already like people chasing them down saying, all right, when can we bid? And then boom, mm. by the way. So well, those kinds of things present themselves and other individuals want to show my work in their gallery just being here. So as soon as I came back in, people are like, hey, where are you at? What are you doing? it's like um actually moved back to Oklahoma City from Washington DC. Oh, hey. I want you to be in my gallery. That kind of that kind of thing happens. That happens more than it did when I first started.
2: When uh And finally the last question. Um what do you want to say to the 18-year-old gerald you had an opportunity to sit down with, with him what would you say
1: i uh i would probably say are you going to are you going to join the service or are you going to go to the co- go to college and what college are you going to go to do more research on the college that you want to go to rather than uh, I wouldn't say it was a hasty decision, but it was a decision because my brother joined the Marine Corps. That's what I wanted to do. He was telling me about boot camp and I thought, "Man, that's fun." Sounds like a sounds like a blast. I'll tell you god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and but it was one of those things that led me to do all of these different things in my life. So I would tell young Gerald to go to college, become that physical education teacher, wear that whistle around your neck, and uh, sit in the bleachers after you push the basketballs out there. Take that attendance and uh, (laughs) become a coach. (laughs) But I took the long way around. (laughs) I've had many adventures. And it's not about the destination. It's about the journey.
2: (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. (laughs) Some days that seems like the appealing choice, though. No, it does not. Well, Gerald, thank you for your time. Is is there anything else uh, you want to bring up while we're here?
1: Well, I think any young artist that's out there in high school, you're you're doing the greatest work ever in high mm. school. That's that's <laughs> your thought. And then you get into college, you get into a competitive college, an art institute, and you look around the room. You were the best artist in your in your entire high school. And now you're looking around the room and now you're competing with the best the best artists in their high schools. And this is across the country. And once you get into that Masters of Fine Arts program, you're in the same situation again. So anytime you go into a show, you're going to be looking at people who are trying to do innovative things while keeping up with what's happening uh, regionally, locally, nationally, internationally. So Now you're competing with world artists. And how do you do that? So it's through this education. So everybody needs some sort of education. If that's teaching you a technique, a style, art history. So you need to know what's going on art historically, all the way from the Lascaux Cave paintings all the way up to today. Follow that Indian art, where it began, what it was influenced by, all of those sorts of things know who you are and where you come from, that in itself will take you 20, 30 years. So I would say to the young artist that really wants to become someone, someone that people will look up to in the future, you need to start now in high school. You need to follow your dreams, but also you need to learn your culture, your language, your history and your traditions so that you know who you are and where you come from and that you're going to be telling the world about who you are, about what your people are, where they come from, why they do what they do, and do that in a very intellectual way.
0: You know, you saying this reminds me of uh, something Don Rouleau had told us back in the Oscar Howe program back in 1993. It mirrored this, you know, and... I remember being young and trying to take in what he was saying. It's just it's good, solid advice. It's good, solid information. I just hope that those who are listening to this, they've got that support around them to keep them on task. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. Gerald, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me, Joe. You take care. All right, you too. Bye. Bye.
0: And that does it for this first episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Gerald Knoyer, again, for his time and sharing his story with us. More importantly, I want to thank you for joining us and spending time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. Please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me at our Cana Facebook page. That's C-A-N-A-A. That's Creativity Among Native American Artists. That's over on Facebook, or you can check out our website at planesart.org. That's planes, P-L-A-I-N-S-A-R-T.org. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts, as well as other programming at the Plains Art Museum. You can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes, and there will be more podcast platforms coming. If you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, please find me on my Facebook page and message me. I'll be happy to hear from you. So again. Take care, and thank you, and we will see you next week.